I found a way to process this and it's to document it. <laughs> and I said, and I think I want to find my birth father. When I saw him, I think that's why I went a bit hysterical because I was like, I've never ever had that feeling. And people <gasps> underestimate how important that is because when you have it all the time. From Radio Studio A, it's Talking Salford. Yes, we're back in the studio after the summer break at our Media City campus. And I'm really excited to bring you a really special episode with our guest today. He's been on a voyage of discovery, which has been captured in the BBC3 documentary, Stranger in My Family, that aired on September 12th. And I'm delighted to have him in the studio with us today. So a warm welcome to Luke Davies. Hello. Thank How you are for we today? Me. I'm good. I'm very good. It's so good to have you with us. Uh, now, as with all our guests today, Luke is a University of Salford graduate, arriving back in 2012 to study film studies after initially starting his higher education journey at Birmingham City University. Luke went on to do a master's in media production here, graduated in 2017, and then bagged his first job at the TV production company Red, which is based here at Media City. He was then accepted onto a scheme run by the British Film Institute, on producing where he trained to become a creative producer. This led to him founding his own production company here in the Northwest called Polari, which he set up to make productions, which in his words, champion the boundlessness of queer and marginalized lives through film, TV and more. Now, Polari have gone on to make a variety of short films over the last few years, which brings me to Stranger in My Family. So the one hour documentary aired on BBC Three earlier this month and is based on Luke's emotional family journey after he takes a DNA test and discovers the decades-long family secret that his father is not his birth father and that he actually has strands of both Iberian and West African DNA, despite thinking he was 100% English for most of his life. The documentary follows Luke's journey to track down his long-lost family in Portugal, which unfolds over a number of years through camera footage and video diaries. Now, Luke, before we get stuck into the documentary and all that that reveals, Let's talk about your Salford journey. So talk to me about your early interest in film and how Salford came to be where you ended up. So for me, um, kind of coming into media and film and TV and things like that, it was kind of just based on a bit of pressure in college and uni just to apply to those things. So in high mm -hmm. school, they said, you need to apply to college. Like, even if you don't want to go, just apply to it. And so I was like, the only thing that I'm good at is media. So I did, I applied and I thought, I'll just go and do it and see what happens. And then um, the same thing happened in college. I was kind of getting more interested in it and seeing it in my own, like on my own terms. And yeah. they said, just apply to uni, see what happens. And then I ended up going to Birmingham mm -hmm. City University first and then the reason for that was because they had a module about making music videos and that was like my obsession for some oh, reason. Okay, okay. So I went and then uh, I didn't know it was a module. I thought it was like this longer thing. So mm -hmm. then when I realized it was a module, I was like, I don't know why I've invested <laughs> my whole uni career into this <laughs> now. So um, I don't know. I just decided that I wanted to come back home yeah. and then Salford seemed to be the best place to kind of transfer to. So I transferred to do film studies here. So music videos, was that something that you wanted to make going forwards? Uh, or was it just uh, working with cameras, editing? What what was the key passion for you early on? The story was always the passion and still mm -hmm. is. I, I think I struggled to find a way into that to kind of sell myself as a person who could make a, like, 
just do ideas and talk about ideas like you don't know that that's an actual job everything's very much like camera person or very technical and I didn't have a lot of those skills and so I'd done my film studies degree and then struggled a bit because I'd come out like with dissertations and everything talking about film but I'd not really made any okay and so that's hard in an industry where you kind of just have to climb a ladder and have to have some kind of tangible skill so that's what made me I did take a break out and then came back to do a master's and my focus then was to learn some skills but also still have the hope that I could find a way in the story like route and try and figure out what that was called. So you arrived in Salford uh, in quite a while ago because that was before our new Adelphi building even was up. You were in the old Adelphi building yes. so can you talk to me about uh, your first impressions when you arrived here in, in Salford? <sighs> I mean, my so my dad is from Salford. Yes. Um, I mean, it was funny because I ended up like coming to the uni and knew more about Salford because of that than my dad, even though like my family lives in Salford as well. Mm-hmm. Um, my first impressions, I don't know, the, the old Adelphi building was, as it says on the tin, old. It was like <laughs> vintage building. Um, and it, I, I don't know, those times it were really strange because I'd come into a course that had started mm. and I was in the second year, so... It was a bit difficult because I was trying to, like, meet people and connect with them, but they'd all made a lot of memories and freshers, you know, those, like, formative, that first year. So it was a bit strange. A lot of the time, you know, in all honesty, I spent travelling, like, outside of studies. Um, And I think that's what made me feel a bit stuck when I came out of uni because I'd learnt so much and had become even more, like, ferocious in terms of, like, storytelling and, mm-hmm. and being interested in that. I just didn't know how to translate that into the real world. So, yeah, I had some great times in terms of, uh, you know, I f- still have some good friends from that time, but it wasn't until I came to my, do my master's, master's that I felt like I was like, oh, I get it now. I get yeah. what I need to do and I get where I need to be. So this is going to be the avenue into that. What are, the, what are the kind of core memories that jump out from your time as a student? Because we're here in Media City, and this is where you spent most of your, your Masters, yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so talk to me a little bit about some of those core memories that jump to mind now that you're back on campus. The one memory that jumped out to me when I arrived here um, today was... Um, doesn't put me in a good light at all, but <laughs> I didn't really understand... I was so impatient with the booking process for the kit because okay. I just wanted to use it and they had this whole system and I don't know it's like when you're feeling creatively inspired and you've, mm. you've got people on board you know it's like time sensitive yeah and so a lot of the times I would have to have um, end up being pulled in for conversations about you need to fill these forms in <laughs> then it goes through a process then we sign it off and I was like but the thing I want to film I need to do it now so those were like funny things because my friends were like you're just not going to give up on that and you know I think my tutors were like well you're passionate so it's not that bad but just please do the process <laughs> um, and also I was a student representative of my part of my um, master's course so okay. those modules were broken down into things like post-production uh, documentary mm-hmm. uh, and I did TV drama production so I was student rep for that um, which yeah meant I was just always trying to f- complain about something <laughs> even there weren't really even any issues but I just felt like I, there was just a lot of I don't want to waste this opportunity. And I think there was so much to do here in terms of kit. And then they'd always be kind of pushing you to do extracurricular stuff. Like um, I went to be a runner at the RTS Awards Mm -hmm. um, and just get involved in the industry as well as your studies and see yourself as an active like part of that industry. 
so yeah it was really beneficial and it kind of flew by in a blur but there was just so many good memories of being allowed to think about ideas and that's what you spend your time on and that's hard to find that to do sometimes in the real world so i really like cherish that time I think one thing I'll say about this this school, particularly at the university, is is the the industry connections it has that helps its students get really get going in this industry. As you say, you you were at the RTS Awards as a runner. Um, that's one of the partners of the university. That there's so many connections that students have access to. And as a master's student, were you just very keen to try and take advantage of as most as many of them as you could when you were here? Yeah, it was made very clear what was available to you, and it's as I believe about pursuing a creative career of any kind, it's like you've got to make the most of that. Yep. You know, it's not just going to happen. And in that process, you're kind of learning what it is you want to do. Because maybe a lot of people do know they want to be a DOP and things, and there's a bit maybe more of a clear path to that. Mm -hmm. But for people who are just creative and like a lot of different things, it's a time to explore those and kind of focus on getting rid of stuff you don't like to do by trying it out. Trying it. And yeah. put more time into what you do and then on top of that having those industry connections like, you know, the Beth Hewitt, um, who was here when I was studying, she was just such a kind of leader for that and an advocate for getting involved and like not being shy to like knock on a door you know and that's something i have no problem with now but maybe at the time like was trying to learn and mm -hmm. you just feel like well i don't have a credit and i don't have this but she's like just go and do it you know if they, if they say no then they say no it's that kind of mentality and absolutely i think that's kind of what i've kind of kept with me since i left so you get an opportunity to train with the bfi uh what was it about producing that was appealing to you I mean, it was very strange how that happened because I was working at Red, was working as an office assistant, mm -hmm. and as soon as I started working there, they said, this job is, it's six months, and then if you kind of do well in the six months, we'll give you another six I months, see. but then you only can ever have 12 months because okay. it's like a revolving door into like right. the industry. Yeah. So like the moment that I got the job, I was like, I need to figure out how to stay. <laughs> I'm gonna get the other six months first of all, and I'm gonna figure out how to stay. And then I just was like obsessed with development and asking about that. So, eventually, um, I worked up to getting an assistant script editor job, and I got that job about three weeks before I got the DNA results. Oh wow! And so, I went from a nine to five job to production hours, which is usually ten, you know, yeah. ten, eleven, twelve hours sometimes every day mm. and um, it just became a lot so I ended up leaving the job to go okay. back to Rochdale where my parents live and just figure out what I was doing and there was like an anxiety of like how could I have just like I was on this ladder finally going somewhere how could I have stopped and just kind of that anxiety and in the mid the, how, it, how busy I was was that I'd forgotten that I'd applied for this BFI scheme. I see. And so I'd gone home and was just not really doing anything. I just was kind of looking after myself. And then yeah. I got an email out of nowhere saying that I got onto the scheme. And I thought, what scheme? <laughs> you know, I'd kind of forgotten. And then I read it and then, oh, yeah, no, I, I did want to do this. But I, I don't know. I just wanted an opportunity to, like, take ownership of my own career. I think I'd lost yeah. that a bit. And producing is so many things that I thought again I was like is this going to be to my detriment because I'm not focusing but then I got there and was like oh the creative producing is the focus like you yeah. can do all those things within that role mm -hmm. and so that drew me in and then when I went to do the sessions um, just meeting the other producers and 
again, like, it was the realisation of not many people really are that bothered about what you haven't done. It's like, just pick the things you have, talk about those, be confident, and, you know, and then again, that experience on the Creative Producers Lab just emboldened me to go, if there was ever a time to take myself seriously, do it by myself and have it fail, and it not really having a massive impact on my life, I could just go and do whatever I was doing before. Yeah. Like, this was the time. And so that was the conduit to that. And then Polari came. Yeah, that. yeah. I went to Aesthetica as part of BFI Producers Lab and met a writer called Valerie Bundy, um, and who had a script. Uh, it's now called What Would Julie Do? It had a different name then. Uh, and I just thought it was hilarious. And I said, OK, I want to make this film. <laughs> like, I'd been not done that much producing, but I was like, I'm going to produce this film, I'm just going to figure it out. And then I remember I was going somewhere, and I just thought, like... I'm going to set up my own company. I had a different name before that I'd made up. And then I'd read about Polari and it's kind of links to, you know, queer history and mm-hmm. things like that. And I just thought that's so apt. It's like it's its own language that only the people who know it will understand. And that's what I want my work to be. Either will resonate with people who get what that is or it kind of will entertain and educate people who don't. So... What did you set it up with the eye? What achievements did you have in mind with it when you set it up? I don't think I was too focused on the company initially. I was think I was more focused on being kind of credited as a producer mm-hmm. and getting that out of the way because that was my f- anxiety. I see. I was like, I can't say I'm a producer. And like, I mean, I was saying it to myself and to my friends, but I was like, I can't push that and 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 there's no foundation to stand on unless I have credits and that experience. Yeah. So I was like, I just want to make this film. And then Polari's grown off the back of making the films because you make things and you go, I, you know, like a lot of different stories, but what's the company? Mm-hmm. You know, and so now I've done four short films, have two more coming up to make. And it's like, they're just becoming more closely aligned. It's like I've separated from Polari. And I think just that I just wanted to focus on you know, I'm a queer person. I feel like there's a lot missing in those stories. Okay. Um, and they're quite two-dimensional sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're made not for us uh, or with us. And so that was my first focus. But then I'm a big champion of intersectionality. And, you know, I'm intersectional in many ways, as we all are. And so it was kind of like, that's actually more interesting. That's where the most interesting things in life are. The crossover of it all. Yeah. And so that's where it's become now is looking at it through that lens when I pick up projects. And so with the company itself, um, you mentioned before that you struggled with anxiety when it came to this kind of as a career. So then setting up your own company, did was that tr- quite tricky then to, to reckon with in terms of the pressures that come with that? What's funny and that, this is why I always say to anyone who wants to start a company, is starting a company is literally just filling in a form and getting a piece of paper for £12. Then you've got a company. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was what was so funny to me because I remember doing it and it was three weeks before the pandemic and I was mm-hmm. in my parents' bed, bedroom mm-hmm. and I was just like, I have no money, I have a company. <laughs> so what, do I do, do I for a party? Like, I was like, this is so like anticlimactic. <laughs> and that's literally what it, I mean, that's the literal like nature of it, but it's it's making people trust that and making people understand what that is. Yeah. And that's what's scary is you don't really know yet. And so you're trying to go advocate for something and, and you know, 
make people understand it but you don't know and so you just kind of have to throw yourself into the actual films and along the way you know companies change people change and I always accepted that I might turn around and not it might not work you know uh, but I just thought well it's helpful to have this entity and to to see things through that lens and it's almost like I want to make it proud in a way like and do it justice and so mm-hmm. once you grow it that's when it becomes a bit more difficult because you've got projects you've got a lot of social media you've got a lot of different hats to wear Absolutely. so yeah it's it's an adventure but then it's like even on the hard days it's like you can't give like go of it and somehow it's like still fulfilling well, you own it don't you yeah, yeah i have yeah. that piece of paper <laughs> <laughs> um so to the documentary uh and my thanks to those who had the patience to wait with beta breath before we get stuck into it uh, or who skip forward to this bit uh so look it's, it's a wonderful piece of filmmaking um I would ask firstly if you could tell me how the actual doc happened. I mean, it all stems back to a DNA test, doesn't it? Yes, yes, indeed. Um, so the reason that I kind of did the DNA test was for a long time prior, um, it just became that I was being asked about my race, my ethnicity, mm-hmm. what my parents looked like, where I was from, uh, and sometimes getting accusations about, like, when I did answer like being delusional and all these different things and um it was it's just it makes you feel very vulnerable yeah. and you know it, it's just a really difficult weird position to be in and so someone in my life at the time had told me a story about that they did this postal DNA kit and it kind of like uncovered something in their family and you know as, as she was kind of telling me the story I just thought you know, if there was ever anything hidden away or if something was to happen to explain why I'm getting all these questions, like, this probably would be it and this would be the avenue to find out. Yeah. And so I ended up... Um, I'd actually gotten a bonus from work and then... Because I saw the kit, couldn't afford it. And then I got a bonus from work and then it got discounted for Christmas, the test, and it ended up being the amount of the bonus. Okay. And I was like, it's a sign. I'm just going to do it. And so I waited for three months for it to come back. And it was, uh, like I said, January 2019. And uh, yeah, and then it's just kind of what do you do? What do you say next? Because I knew that that I wanted to speak to my mom. Mm-hmm. But then you just kind of also don't want to ask. I can it's... absolutely understand that. I mean, it's probably one of those conversations where you don't know how to start and you really, really don't want it to go poorly, I suppose. Yeah, and I'd, the main thing for me, which I know people might not understand, but it's like I didn't want her to be upset or to be mm. scared. You know, no. I was like, if there is something, like, there'll be emotions for me to deal with at some point, I'm sure. But I just never was coming at it from a place of anger because I knew there was more to it. It's yeah. always more complex, you know, and I'm very close to my parents anyway, so mm-hmm. I was like, I just can't see that there would be malice here or something. And so, yeah, I just asked my mum to come over and spent so much time avoiding the subject and then eventually just said, you know, I've done this test, I don't know what to do with the results. And, you know, she just said that what the truth was and dad wasn't my biological father and yeah I just I don't know I didn't know I just kind of freaked out and and then saw it as this kind of military operation to fix it all and then over time it just becomes like oh you know you tell friends and things and they go that's 
really intense. Yes. And I'm like, yes. isn't it? <laughs> isn't it crazy? And then after a while, you're kind of like, oh, it, it is kind of crazy. And re- it, what was painful and what instigated me to kind of have to leave work and feel mm. and get into that space was revisiting memories and revisiting Absolutely. conversations and your whole life suddenly yeah. then you you look at it differently I'm yeah sure. i mean things you know had been said that maybe i didn't that i construed as one thing and it meant something else and mm. or i was treated in a certain way or i don't know you know it's all just it's like systemic issues but then you kind of like don't know and it's all just very confusing and and then you have a realization of oh, I've grown up in Rochdale in kind of like British culture and that's all I know. And then now there's actually more of my kind of DNA and identity is made up of non-British things yeah. I have literally no clue about. So it's like, it's hard not to think, oh, what was that life that I would have had? If, and so, yeah, it starts with the questions, really. So, wh- so when did you decide that I'm going to make a documentary about this? So I'd watched a doc um, called Evelyn on Netflix and it just was the first time I'd seen a film from a filmmaker's perspective where they were talking about their mm-hmm. own family and I thought, God, that must be so difficult. But I also completely understood mm-hmm. and I just thought, this is probably the only way that I could ever go about it because there's no one structure. Like, there was no book. There was no, like, toolkit. And so, yeah, there were two, the two things that came into my head were this will give me structure, I can kind of put it next to me and walk alongside it and then have to feel it all. Yeah. And also, it will be for someone else. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's such a an, an, an weird situation, but these things are not ne- unique in terms of, we see shows like Long Family and all those mm-hmm. stuff, you know, you know, it's a lot of different secrets and families, and I just thought if someone finds themselves in quite a specific situation like I am, at least they'll have this film to watch, you know. That's the hope that if it ever got that that's someone will watch it and find comfort in that. I mean, so the doc shows that you you, you were focused on really pushing for an- for answers. Can I talk about your relationship with your dad, Gary, though? Because how did you cope with that, and how did he cope with that? <clears throat> um, well, when I'd had the conversation with mum, I obviously asked immediately if dad knew, and she said yeah. no, and. It was just, I, you know, I thought, right, we have to figure out how to tell him. Mm. And so there was just a lot going on at once. So I didn't want to be like, right, well, even though I wanted to be like, right, we'll set the date that that's going to happen and all stuff. I just said, okay, will you go home? Because I wasn't with my parents at this point when I got the yeah. result. So I said, you go home. Don't panic. I'm not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say anything. We're doing this together now, mm-hmm. right? So the burden's off your shoulders, kind of. We'll figure it out. And so made a plan that I was going to come and stay over and then we would do it together. And then when I got there, my mum was just quite upset. And mm. I just, I was just worried that dad would, that when someone's trying to tell you something emotional and then they're emotional, it might prevent you a bit from feeling your own like feelings. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so I thought, I th- and, and I was, again, I was still in this mode of just, let's go. And so I said, I'll just do it. So I told him, and again, I was like, I was going around the houses like, um, you know, so I did this DNA test, right? And a DNA test is like where are you like and just over explaining, <laughs> just yeah. No emotion, my just straight like, facts. Yeah. yeah, my dad was like on the computer, so he was kind of like, oh, well, well. <laughs> and I must have been rambling for ages. And then, you know, he just 
I think he started to piece together what I was saying mm. and just said, oh, just said it outright. And then I was like, well, yeah, but it doesn't change anything. And, and I said, it's going to be okay. And But, you know, it's just, it's just difficult. It's in a way that I found that the hardest because Absolutely. it felt like the roles had reversed a little bit, which I did understand because it's it's a very tricky position for all of us mm. and people deal with things so differently. But when it's your parents, you're a bit like, but what, so what do we do then? And, oh, and no you... one knows what to do. So you're kind of like, well, uh, right. And then you're trying to do something. It's just a, this weird pa- like da- power dynamics flipped on the head sort of thing. And so... Yeah, for a long time it was difficult, but they, ne- you know, they never shied away from me. If I asked, they ne- when I wanted conversations, I had every right to, and they said that they agreed that mm. what they went through is what they went through. I don't know, um, you know, in their own lives because at that time I still wasn't home, so I had my own house to come back to. But um, it was hard, and then after a while, when I started to talk about, I'm going to make a film, or I'm going to document. The journey, you know, it wasn't mm-hmm. massively my intention to be like, it's going to be this huge. <laughs> it was just kind of like, I'm gonna, I found a way to process this and it's to document it. <laughs> and I said, and I think I want to find my birth father, um, you know, and then it's like feeling gu- guilty about that and you and trying to reiterate it's not because there's something missing, it's just here, it's just because there's something else that I need to know, and so. They just, they just. I can appreciate. I appreciate them so much because they never said, like, they never wouldn't talk to me. No. Like, it got emotional, mm. got difficult, but they never wouldn't talk to me. They never denied me of anything from the moment that I knew. I guess when you say it's a role reversal, it's because maybe um, with parents, we always look to parents for answers. We always think, well, they'll know what to do. They'll know what to say. And in that situation, you were very much right. Well what we're going to do now what the answers this is what we're going to do and you you were because you were caring for their reactions as well as trying to manage how you were processing it at mm. the time is that yeah. is that yeah exactly that right? yeah. yeah yeah um and what it made me realize is it's the whole process has been really humbling because it's a realization of not just blame 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 outwards mm. but going whoa i actually just realized that we all fall into this pattern of going parents on pedestal they're at the end of the film when i need them they do this for me mm-hmm. and you know and then redu- going through this process i was like they're people like the people of their own they had lives for us around like and that's where their decisions come from yeah those life experiences just as mine do and so that's the best realization in the world is to like know them more mm-hmm. and not go you can't say this or tell me that because you're my parent and vice versa like were people yeah. who just happened to be my parents and I'm your son, like, you know. And so it's been nice that, and I think that that's where everything started to open up more because it's like, that's not hide anymore, yeah. so. I guess it's at this point that we can reveal that you did find your father, Carlos, who has been living in London and runs a cafe with uh, two other brothers that you have. Now, the moment you meet on screen, it is wonderful. And and I was so nervous for you when I, when it came to that. I was just so nervous because it the first time you meet is as you say is on camera. It's captured in this dog, and that's on film forever. That's that's immortalized. That's and that's one of the most personal moments in your life. How does that feel? Hmm. On the day. What's funny is, as you see in the film, like I can't stop laughing because I just think it's all so 
bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of like this poor man that's coming and just filming all this stuff. But um, it just it just felt leading up to that, knowing first and foremost that even before we'd done an, another test to check everything, mm. whatever, he immediately said they would meet me. Yeah, you know, and and it was like a breath of fresh air because so much of the process and the journey had felt like me pulling at things and demanding of things and it was just like so easy and I really can't explain it it's like I'd never had anyone look like me first of all he so when I saw him similar to you. when I saw him I think that's why I went a bit hysterical because I was like I've never ever had that feeling and people <gasps> underestimate how important that is because when you have it all the time so that like threw me off and then it just felt like I knew it. It just felt like I knew him. Mm. Like, and what I always say, like, what I've been saying recently is when I found Carlos and when I found my brothers and even just spending the smallest amount of time with them, I was always worried that if I did find him, I was going to feel like I was dropping into his life and being like, oh, God, I'm this big, like, like bomb in someone's life. It didn't feel like that. I just felt like I caught up to them. And it felt like it was like, I'm late, I'm here now, and we're carrying on. It wasn't a, oh, all the stuff I've missed, like, you know. And we had that moment, we had those conversations, and Carlos not knowing his birth father, my grandfather, and me bringing that to him, like, that's hard. That was a fear of mine. Once we started to piece things together, I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm good. I'm going to turn up and not only be this bomb in someone's life, in Carlos's life, but also put him in the same boat or he's in, been in the same boat and mm. there's just a lot going on at once it, and it, it's so much as you say the amount of emotions in that room from both of you yeah my poor crew were like <laughs> crying <laughs> behind the camera bits, yeah. mm. it, it's so emotionally charged but then I think it was always going to be and that's why, that's why I was so nervous going into that bit because I was thinking right I'm going to have to keep calm I, it's just yeah it's it's just so it's so beautiful though it really is um when you when you show him the picture um of Joao your grandfather oh he, it broke me <laughs> it really yeah, did it's hard um you enlist the services of a genealogy service to help you with this and they are so superb at tackling your family history from from when the doc where it shows um from the distant relatives to then when you when you go to Abafera and then eventually when they track Carlos down I mean did you ever think it was going to happen that smoothly and and as you and as you said it this took place over what three months in terms of working with yeah the company that's so fast that's that's brilliant service I mean in your wildest dreams did you ever think it was going to be as simple as it looks in the documentary no I mean there were times that were really tough like earlier in the journey, like the making of the film mm. and stuff, like I remember when we went to Portugal and you see in the film we got to find the bar and the yeah. bomb comes with me. That was, it felt like a last attempt in the safety of that process, like mm. with everybody with me. And I was just facing, in terms of the production, it was coming to an end soon and you have to put a limit on how long are we going to keep going. How long are you keep going for? And that was looming really and I was going to Portugal with all the hope in my heart but at the same time starting a grieving process because even though I wouldn't have given it up 
it changed everything. It's back to me all by myself. And so it was a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. But just like I say, with the director, Sonny and Tamara, genealogists, like everyone was just picking me up, you know, like, you know, whether it be about finding Carlos or whether it be Angela being like, this is your history, you know. We did obviously more filming in Portugal and that was about culture and, you know, she's like, are you excited? Like, this is yours, it all belongs to you. And I'm like, yeah, like, <laughs> I am, but it's all so much. <laughs> and, you know, it's just having that around you all the yeah. time. It becomes like a family and, um, yeah, I just, it's, it happens so fast in, in terms of, like, coming back from Portugal and meeting Carlos. That's, mm. like, weeks but then yeah before that it's it's very much hopeful days optimistic days and then days where you really don't want to talk about it and, and you have to film and you're doing video diaries uh for a long time and and i remember watching it and that must be so hard because it there's a video diary almost after every big moment in the documentary and I'm just like, this is so, it's so personal. That's the one thing that I kept thinking of. It's such a personal journey that you're sharing, you're choosing to share with the world. Um, and that that's a big thing. Mm, I don't know if anyone, like, you should try video diaries one time because what's weird about them, right, is that when things happen in the way that we're actually filming, mm. I almost become a bit, like, stunned and so obviously, like, you want to talk, like, your directors are like, how are you feeling? Like, and you need I'm to like, talk about it, I yeah. don't know. There's just nothing, and it's really hard. And then you go home, and everyone goes away, and then it's dark, and you're tired, and you sit, and you put it on, and you, you're processing your own feelings out loud. And mm. it became, like, I did it for three years, so it became, like, the the wet, like, the conduit to talk about those things. And you really just forget, you don't, you know, so many are not in it. So you don't know what's to be used and what's not, and you can't even think about anyone because you're just so feeling everything at once. Yeah, that it became a really helpful tool, and and you know something. That, again, the directors were like, even when you don't want to do it, please, you know, because you're just just generally tired from filming. Yeah, it's yeah. Process. Uh, and, and then every time I'd be like, uh, on the days it was hard, I was like, but then I'd do it and go, oh, I'm glad I did that now because I just feel heard better? something. Yeah, because I just heard myself say something that I didn't yeah. even know I was feeling or. Yeah, or like process something, and it's it's strange. Like I know it would be weird for people to just do it in their own lives, but it's really cathartic. Like it's the process of hearing it out, like like forcing four hundred thoughts into like a sentence is like that's what you're feeling. Whatever comes out, that's what you're feeling. Not that you're not feeling everything, but it's like you're articulating it, and, and in that process, that's like recovering from it. You know, so it's a strange one. Like, it almost feels strange to have not done as many now. Yeah. Like, to just stop them, it was, like, strange. But, yeah. I recommend, recommend trying it. No, no, no <laughs> that, that, that's a good bit of advice there for us all to try. Um, the, the big takeaway I had from this documentary is it's the power of fatherhood. What it means, the emotional bond between father and son. Um, and what I love about this documentary is it is not just about you. This is Carlos's story as much as it is yours. Because um, he, as you say, he never knew his father, Joel. And the raw emotion you get from Carlos through the footage with him for when you take him to Albufeira as well, it, it's so emotional to watch. And how how did you cope with that, being there for him in his moments of real emotion? 
in some ways, I felt more confident to navigate that because mm. not necessarily the the most potent times of like being at my grandfather's grave and things like those are just really difficult. But in the navigation of that and the, and the conversations around it, you know, I'd gone through this whole journey and was meeting someone who had by age had more life experience, yeah. but not feeling this. And one of the most like the in quotes funny moments was when we went to on that trip. We got there and we had a day to ourselves, and um, you know I, I'd not known Carlos that long, so mm. we we're just trying to get to know each other. And you, how do you fit a lifetime into conversation? And uh, he said, you know, so this is where I would have lived if I'd have known everything mm. and I said you can't do that because I did that I'd yeah. done it three months before when I went to Albufera and I said because and then you you know started to put it into context about like the time he would have lived in at the certain places and what would have happened and I said the grass isn't always greener mm. although the point is that we have this now and you can't miss out on this by thinking about what's gone and I'd surprised myself forget, like I'd heard that you know, maybe not succinctly, <laughs> like crying. But um, you know, you, you hear that from yourself, and you're like, "Whoa, God, I have changed a lot." And, mm. and then in the process, when I'm struggling with everything else, you know, my dad's there, then Carlos is there. Like, yeah. you know, it's just a di- different types of relationships. And I've always said to my dad that, and and my mum as well, like, I was only able to do this because of the person you turned me into. You know what I mean? It was like, that's beautiful. That's what m- enabled me to go everywhere and know that when it was hard, I used to come home yeah. to, I could have stopped anytime mm-hmm. and gone home and nothing would have changed. They never would have asked me about it again if I, want, yeah. if I wanted that. And so it's nice to like feel that, like that's love from your parents. And then it enables you to form this new relationship whilst having so much appreciation for, the, for what's always been there. How is your relationship with Carlos and your brothers now? It's good. It's good. It's again. It's really weird. It's like they've always been there, which is a very strange feeling. And then there's conversations that come up where I'm like, I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about, <laughs> like memories and stuff. Um, but no, I've spent a bit of time with them where I can. They live in London, obviously. Mm. I live here in Manchester. Um, but it's good. I mean, there's just so much love and, and interest there, and, and effort, you know, to turn up in people's lives that. Their lives are going on. They've been going on. They have jobs, like everything. Yeah. And I wasn't there. I can't go into expecting attention and or vice versa. You know, mm. you just got to let it happen. And they're just to turn up as well with a film and hope they'll do that. They, they never had an issue with it. You know, even now. Yeah. And they've always supported that and come to the screening and all those things. You know, it's it's really humbling, and in turn, you know, like this in the film, like uh, I think Hugo says, um, Third Musketeer. Yeah, he you does, know, and yeah. Ben was like, "I've lost my older brother, brother, like top spot sort of thing." It's <laughs> like it's you're seeing yourself, and you're like, "Like, oh god, I'm their older brother." Um, yeah, I have everything to get. You know, it's like you want to be there for them. So it's just new relationships, and you have to figure yeah. that out on what that is, rather than what it needs to look like. It's nice. I think you're kind of blessed by the fact that there's no that there's no baggage really of the I guess the childhood 
issues that you have with siblings. You you guys are coming in fresh. You're you're fully fully adults. You yeah. You've you've been through all the stuff that you go through as a teenager and as a child, and you can have some real humbling relationships with your siblings. Yeah, they've I, told yeah. me their stories of fighting when they're younger and yeah. the, how different it's funny I do feel like I'm I'm a bit of both of them like they were, ta- they were talking about one instance about something when just typical brother stories and stuff um, and I was like I would react like that but I'd also <laughs> react like that <laughs> you know it's really funny and it's just this yeah there's so many things that are just typical in life that that always happens but it's nice to hear that I mean, yeah. even though I wasn't there I'm still sharing that you know and how is uh, how's your relationship with your mum and dad in Rochdale? It's good. It's yeah. good. You know, it's stronger than it's ever been. I think. That's good to hear. All they wanted, once we'd kind of gotten used to filming and all that other stuff, is they were just scared that if I didn't find Carlos, what was going to happen? Because oh. mum just said, you know, how long are you going to do it for the rest of your life? Is this going to be it for the rest of your life? You know, because it was all consuming. And I think that was just their fear and they've, they just love me like unconditionally, and in turn, I, I have compassion for them, and it's it, you know it's felt both ways the respect, and again, it's like they just want, even when it's difficult, and even when they're realizing the most vulnerable thing about our family probably is like exposed to the world, you know. Even then, they're still like championing me and That's talking great. about it, and you know, it's it's a very lucky position to be in. Like as much as there's been ups and downs in the journey itself, and it's been hard. Like the one thing that's never wavered is that is that they were there for me. So for me, it was uh, the relationship of fatherhood. But for others, what would you like people to really take from this documentary as its main message? I think it would be, I remember, I think it's in the film, Laura, the genealogist, says to me, you just need to remember you have every right to know who your birth father is. And that was something I struggled with, just mm-hmm. having the right to answers. When it, even when it was hurting me and I wanted to ask the question, I couldn't, yeah. out of fear of hurting other people. And so I think I hope that people would take away that if you have questions or if you find something difficult, whether it be family or in a different type of relationship, like you're allowed to know, mm-hmm. and uh, but you also have to accept that the answer might hurt yeah, and that you'll get through that. You know, it's you just have to, to know the truth is to be healed in a way, you know, like it's what you do with afterwards, like, and how you take that forward. I think that's the most important part for me. Lovely. So um, let's do some hot takes. Uh, so can you tell me what was the TV slash film slash documentary that made you want to work in this industry in the first place? So there's a film called Weekend uh, by the director, Andrew Haig. Um, that was the film that I was like, oh, I want to make a film like this. It's just about two guys over a weekend who kind of form a relationship and one of them potentially might be going away. Mm. And the question is, like, is he going to stay or is he not? Because they barely know each other, really. Um, and it just is so... I'm not, not the logistics of the film. I'm sure it was difficult, but it's just so simple. Mm. And it was the first time I've you know, spoken to a lot of kind of queer men like where it was more real it was just like oh this is actually what it's like that they don't like answer the call or whatever afterwards it's like just all these nuances that were like felt so real and Mm. it was the first time i realized oh you can make films like this like i want to make films like (laughs) this so i'd say that one that's great where do you know where people could get that at all Um, where did you see it it was on netflix a while ago um 
I should probably say buy it on DVD. No, yeah. I don't know. It'll be on some streaming it, platform. It, it, I'm sure if people are interested, they can find it somewhere. Um, so, best bit of advice for a film student in 2023? This is not going to sound inspirational at all, but it's it's practical. What I say is the industry's in a difficult spot, especially right now. Yes. I think the most sensible thing you can do is find something that enables you to have financial security. That doesn't mean a lot of money, it just means getting the bills paid because having anxiety about finances like affects your ability to be creative. That's something that I've really struggled with. Coming from a working class family mm-hmm. is you don't, if you don't have those resources, you're sharing like that brain power with the stress and with everything and, and you won't be giving every, be able to give everything to your project. So I think that there's a lot of stigma of that, of if you're not pursuing your dreams, then you're not, uh, if you're not just doing that, yep. then you're not pursuing them. And it's like, no, like, we have to live practically. And to do that is going to make sure that all you're at the time is the most creative because you've got everything settled. Yep. Have that foundation for yourself. Cool. Thank you for that. And last one, sell the University of Salford to me in a sentence. Come and find your people. I think that's what I did. Two of my friends were, have been with me since I graduated in 2017. Sure, we're all together as well, we're kind of stuck together now. And again, they've supported me, I've supported them, even when we've left and come back, you know, to film and TV and stuff. It's, they are people and that's who you're around. And you don't need to just find people who are gonna, like, help your career. You need friends, like, to be around who get that and get how difficult it is, so come and find them here, I guess. That's beautiful. <laughs> is that a bit corny? That's, oh, you know what? Uh, I'm all for corny, and <laughs> that's that's really lovely. Oh, thank you for that. Um, that brings us to an end. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. I loved it. Thank you. So if you want to keep uh, watching and listening, please do let us know and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As with all podcasts, this one is on YouTube. If you want to watch me be an emotional mess in the studio here. Um, But until then, we'll see you next time. 